Um, I'm going to be doing today's reading. We are reading from Exodus 11 all the way to 12, verse 13. So follow along with me. Now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire, with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Thank you, Shireen. That's the word of the Lord. This is God's word, and it's great to be able to unpack it with you this morning. And uh, know that that is a loaded text. Some of you are going, what is going on there? And 
why does it say some of those things? And we're going to get to that. It's a loaded but a very fundamental text. You'll notice my chewing gum is stuck to my iPad. I didn't know where to put it. So I put it there because I was scratching and looked down. I thought, if I stick it there, it's going to be stuck there for life. So here it is on my iPad. <laughs> we had the amazing privilege this weekend. We drove back from Franchuk this morning. Uh, we left just after 7 o'clock and drove back from a camp where we were away with about uh, 65, 70 young people from across our advanced movement of churches in the Western Cape I don't know how many churches, probably 25, and uh, 18 to 28-year-olds who just came to be away and just to ask big questions of their lives, of God and the kingdom. And uh, we climbed up a mountain, and I got my very own experience of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Look at that. I get to stand at the top of Mont Rochelle on Saturday morning and to just speak about Jesus. What a, could you think of a more amazing place to tell people about Jesus? So imagine you're up there right now listening to this uh, beautiful passage. But we've just had a great weekend. We feel like we're so excited about the next generation of people that God is raising up and going to use to do hopefully beautiful things in the kingdom. Sound cool? You guys are excited this morning, hey? Sounds good, doesn't it? Sure. It's the second time back after a long time. We should be a little more excited. (laughs) So it's an interesting passage that we've just read. Uh, Some of you who are well-versed in Scripture, you read that passage and you go, this is like honey on my lips as as I think about it, as I consider it. It is so sweet. It's the gospel message. Others of you heard some lines in that, like um, the, the whole animal getting eaten, the, 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 the burning of the excess and the guts, and you're going, oh my gosh, and, and maybe the thing of, but God hardened the Pharaoh's heart, and you're going, what is up with these difficult texts? And I wish I had time to go into everything, but uh, Shireen did an amazing job of covering a whole bunch of ground. If you're wanting to know about uh, God hardening the Pharaoh's heart, which is a big topic, and I'm not just going to have enough time to do that justice, we're going to send you two resources this week um, in our daily, uh, weekly mailer, and, uh, and we've already sent it to life group leaders. In terms of helping you understand some of those tricky, difficult texts, especially like God hardening the Pharaoh's heart. I think the other thing that makes this a tricky text is that in many ways we look at a, a passage like this and we feel kind of sad, like the, the firstborn son, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, and, and we just, uh, most of us haven't been through radically oppressive environments. Maybe a handful of us lived on the, the difficult and challenging side of apartheid, but, but many people haven't lived through the real oppression that uh, uh, some people have in the world. And so when you read this, you find yourself going, oh, difficult, but, but also harsh. And, and trying to get your head around those kinds of uh, difficult situations, it, it just, it's, it's tricky for us. And I, we just don't like death. You know, you hear about uh, somebody dying or something dying in our Western world. We're just death averse. We don't want to talk about death very much. And so this is a a challenging text. But I do want to encourage you into uh, a journey of faith because this story of Exodus, uh, especially these chapters that we're looking at, make up the backbone 
of who we are as followers of Jesus, makes up the backbone of the, the Jewish faith, and it's the story that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, this story is one of the key stories that is fulfilled in Jesus' story. And so we've got to engage with this one, even if we've got to push into some of those tricky things. Now, one of the important things is to remind ourselves where we are. Because when you hear this thing of uh, firstborn son uh, running the risk of, of dying under the hand of God's judgment, we need to know what's led us up to this point. And if you are joining us for the first time, you may have missed out on the fact that the people of uh, Israel are under the oppressive rule of the Pharaoh. And God has said he wants to redeem them out of this evil, oppressive slavery. He is the Pharaoh who commanded an infanticide to kill the firstborns of the, the Hebrews. He was the Pharaoh who, when they were in slavery, decided he would make it even harder. And he took some of their tools away and he took some of their, uh, their, their wealth away and made it harder and harder. He is a very harsh man. And then you've got nine plagues. Next made it, uh, reminded us last week that God came to Pharaoh and he said, let the people go. And he starts with one plague. And he starts with, an, and then he brings another. And just imagine this. The Pharaoh gets told by Moses, this plague is coming. Pharaoh says, I don't care. And he ignores nine warnings. Imagine, this is like the first wave of COVID comes. Imagine this happens. And, and, and a messenger says, there's another wave coming. Just change your ways. And another wave comes. And another wave. And another wave. And just, it, it was way harsher than that. And he just wouldn't give in. He couldn't acknowledge that there was another God who was more powerful, who had more control than him. And the longer it went, the harder his heart became. This is not the story of a moment that just came out of nowhere where God comes and he says, I'm going to judge the firstborn, every firstborn son of, of Egypt. This has been a progressive journey of offering warnings and offering mercy and hardness of heart and resistance. And maybe one of the big things for us to consider even this morning is to ask the question of our own hearts. Are we prone to sometimes uh, ignoring the warnings, ignoring the signs, ignoring the opportunities for a wake-up call, opportunities to see who God is and to say yes. I don't know where all of us are at. Most of us, I imagine, are here because we have chosen to follow Jesus. Some of us are here maybe to uh, explore who Jesus is. And I think that whether you're a follower of Jesus, there is every chance that as a follower of Jesus, like Pharaoh, there are still things we hold on to. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, there are opportunities for us, like Pharaoh, to say yes to the living God and to acknowledge his amazing love over us and to say, actually, I need you. And today I'm going to provide opportunity for each of us in whatever situation we're in to take a humble look at who God is and to say some hopefully helpful big yeses to him because I believe this morning with all my heart that he's calling us and that he's calling us to something special. Now, you might be asking, why did God do this? Why the whole Passover journey? And he gives us a clue in chapter 6, verse 7. So we go back a couple of verses or chapters. And in uh, verse 6 of, uh, of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, 
I am the Lord, and I'll bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Some clues there as to why God actually did this. The big clue there you can see is, then you will know that I am the Lord. He's, he wants the people to understand who God really is. In a world where there were so many competing options for who God was, was it Pharaoh? Was it Ra? Was it uh, uh, Marduk? Who was the true God who ruled over everything? And God comes into the space to redeem these people to say, I'm the true God, and I will offer you multiple warnings till your eyes are opened, as Mark reminded us, till your hearts see what actually God is like. And there are multiple invitations, multiple warnings, and he wants to show the people of Israel and the people of Egypt who is God. Probably the most important question that you could answer in your life is who you believe God to be. It will determine how you live, what you do and don't do, how you spend your time, what you wake up and think, what you wake up and feel, how you speak to people or don't speak to people, what you love and don't love, what you do with your money, what you do with your body, what you do with your sexuality, what you do with everything will be determined by the answer to who do you say God is? And God is in this progressive journey of showing himself to the people, to the Egyptians and to the Hebrew people, to the Israelites. He's unveiling himself. He's making himself known. And the hope is that he's doing the same for you and I. The hope is that that's part of our journey ongoingly. But this is one of those stories where it becomes crystal clear what kind of God he is. And this becomes the story where the people of Israel would every year be told to remember this one, to gather around every year and begin to tell this story. And annually, it would be one of the high points in the calendar of the Jewish people where they would remember the Passover. Sound familiar? The Passover was the very weekend where Jesus was crucified. It was the, the moment that Jesus himself went to the cross and brought redemption and salvation for humanity. It was that same weekend. How? There's something in that. There's something we need to realize about that. But each Year, they would slow down, they would stop, and the whole community would come to a standstill as they remembered the Passover, as they remembered this story where God brought the people out of Egypt. And it's a story that I think has two parts, two parts. And I want to just share these two parts of the story that we should be telling ourselves about who God is and what he's like. It's a two-part story that goes like this. The first part of the story is it's the story of God and a God who judges justly and a God who judges impartially. He judges justly and he judges impartially. This is such a key part of the God that we serve. You see, what's happening here is there is so much injustice happening in the nation of Egypt at the time. And it's important to realize that, in fact, the Israelites were not perfect people themselves. 
You see, it's not uh, good people and bad people. It's bad people and really bad people. It's one really bad Pharaoh and a whole bunch of really sinful people. The only difference is that the people of Israel are under the oppression of the people of Egypt. And they, too, are sinful people just like you and I. This is not good versus bad. This is God versus Pharaoh. This is God's justice being displayed to a person who thinks he is the the key bastion of justice in the world. And God is coming to show that he alone is the one who is able, who is allowed to express justice in the world. We all actually inherently, there's not a person in the world who doesn't want justice. Seriously, not one of us doesn't want justice to be brought about. Uh, Next reminded us of Tim Keller's beautiful uh, talk around justice and and, and judgment and and God being a a judging God. Listen to it again because I think it's so helpful. Many people in the modern West are not troubled by God's mercy because they don't accept the idea of a God who judges. They want a God of love. But a God who does not get angry when evil destroys the creation he loves is ultimately not a loving God at all. If you love someone, you must get angry if something threatens to destroy him or her. As some have pointed out, you have to have had a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression and injustice yourself, to not want a God who punishes sin. If you and I had to have our cell phones put on a lanyard and hung around our neck and to have the microphone switched on, (laughs) and it listens to everything you and I say and just tracks everything we say, and, and in particular, it records the, the parts where you and I say, do you know what? People should be more like this. And we set all the standards for how humans should live, right? And it records all of them over the course of a number of years. I just think people really need to be more kind. I just think people need to stop doing this in the traffic. I just think people really need to understand this about the vaccine. I just think people really need to. And they start to share everything about their standards for how the world should be. Now, you get that played back to yourself one day. You know what the scary thing is? Is that we wouldn't even be able to live up to our own standards of how we think human beings should be. We would probably find that we fail our own test that we create for how the world should be. Now, add that to the perfection of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. Just think of maybe the Ten Commandments, or you want to go into the perfection of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, and you realize there is such a gap between who we are and who God is, not to mention even our own standards. And we find that as we do that little process, we find ourselves saying, there needs to be justice. Something needs to sort out the problem of wrongdoing. We haven't even got into you know, the, the gruesome evils of, of rape and, and radical greed and injustice and, and dictator, dictatorial leadership over huge masses of people. Just our own basic standards, and we realize that we need justice in the world. We need something to get right with the problems of what's going on and why we can't behave the way we ought to behave. So why this whole firstborn 
thing. Like, why is God threatening the firstborn son of, of, of Israel? Now, I think it's good for you to understand this, because when it comes to the firstborn, there is this uh, understanding for us. We just go, firstborn, secondborn, we're all just as important in the West. You know, mom and dad say we're all equally loved. Like, why, God, are you choosing the firstborn? <laughs> it's important, because there is something so crucial here. You see, we in the West live in what many people call expressive individualism. So each person represents themselves. I stand before the world as my own representative. It doesn't matter who my family are. I am my own me. If I do something wrong, it's on me. If I do something right, it's on me. Not so in the Middle East, not even today, and definitely not in the biblical times. You see, in the biblical times, there was a group think whereby if a person did something good, they would bring honor to not just themselves, but to the whole clan, to the whole family. And if somebody did something bad, it wasn't just on them. They brought their whole family into shame. And if somebody needed to represent the whole clan or the whole family, it would be the firstborn son. And this group think, it's so hard for us to get our heads around because so few of us really live in that. But this is the world into which uh, the, we're reading the scriptures here. And the firstborn son was always a kind of federal representative for the whole. It was speaking of the fact that if you got to the firstborn, you got to the whole. You were he was a representative of everything that was a part of that family. Everything that they represented. If he did something good, good came. And, and good, kind of the reputation was good. And the same in the negative. This is crucial. This is crucial even when you see that Jesus is the firstborn, the only begotten son of God, as a representative before humanity. This is a, a key and important aspect. So, and not only that, there's also the, the, the threat of justice towards the Pharaoh's firstborn son. You see, the Pharaoh's firstborn was to be the representation of the Pharaoh's rule. He was seen as a son of the god Pharaoh. And if you got Pharaoh's son, you got the representative justice over all that Pharaoh ruled over. This firstborn son was not just a random choice by God to go, you know, how am I going to show judgment? That's a good one. He knew that this represented the whole. He was bringing a wholeness and a justice over the whole. And he was showing that he was God over all. So he's a God of justice. But here's what's interesting. Is that when he judges, he doesn't just judge uh, partially and go, you know what, the Egyptians, they've been naughty because they've got a naughty Pharaoh. And the Hebrews, they've been good. He brings about a way to reveal that God is just but he's also a justifier. He justifies by grace. He justifies in, a, in, in acts of incredible mercy. So it's the story of a God who judges, but it's the story of a God of amazing, unceasing grace. That's the second point. It's a story that they would tell themselves, God is a judge and he will bring justice upon every person, but he is also a God of grace. You see, the firstborn would be the one who would take the brunt, but it would be potentially as an opportunity to receive grace. We can't help wanting justice. None of us lie in bed going, just let the bad people, let the bad things keep happening, and it doesn't matter what happens. We want justice. 
But equally, we've got this inherent sense that, how do I know I'm okay? How do I know I've done it right? I was at my 20-year reunion last weekend. Flew up for two nights to go see people I literally hadn't seen for 20 years. It was actually quite nerve-wracking. There were a few like of the bullies who I didn't really want to see, and thankfully they weren't there, which was quite a relief. But by and large, it was great to go back and see these people and play some golf. And one of the stories I was reminded of was the story of um, a buddy of mine, and I'm not going to give his name away because I don't know. You'll see why. Um, and we're in grade nine, standard seven. We're about 14 or 15. And our friend, uh, Daniel, was creating, we're allowed to reveal his name, um, he was creating the first yearbook for our school that, um, that our school had actually edited ourselves. We bought these big, fancy Apple MacBooks. You remember those big ones with the big dome underneath? And anyway, in the library, every break, this guy would be editing the yearbook. And just, it was it was epic. Like, I couldn't believe that technology like this existed that long ago. But every now and again, Daniel would leave the, the, the editing place and leave myself and my buddy, name not shared. And we, would, we just one, one day, as we were munching on our Sami, started tinkering with a few photos. And, and unbeknownst to us, and, and, and we were naughty, and we tweaked a few little heads and you know, pixelized the, the chins and in, you know, enlarged the ears of some of our less, less favorite leaders. And just played around. We, we rubbed off a few of the prefix badges, the ones we didn't really think were the most amazing. And it, it, it really, in, in our minds, we were just working out, like, how do we play with computers and, and Photoshop? And it was really fun because we were just giggling. Like, imagine this went to print. We forget all about it. Six months later, we're sitting in our art class, and life is cushy, and things are going well. We're in our next grade, and our art teacher walks in, and the room goes silent. He's just fuming, and we like, well, you know, he's a bit of a tempestuous guy, and he comes in, and he throws this yearbook down on the desk, and he says, you won't believe what's happened, and he opens up, and he says, these photos have come out, and this has happened, and I find myself shriveling into my chair, and I had forgotten we had even had this moment, and I am melting away, and then he looks at my buddy, who was my accomplice, and he says, so-and-so, your name has come up. And I like then just wanted to hide under my desk and pretend I didn't exist. It was the most terrifying experience. We just knew we had duffed this one. We forgot all about those 45 minutes at break that was just all fun, had turned serious. And I remember my buddy straight after this big rant. He walks up to the teacher's uh, desk and I asked him what he said. And he said, uh, I'm not going to tell you what he said to the teacher. It's not worth it. But he goes to the teacher, and he simply gets us off the hook. And if I've never, only till this day on, on the reunion, got to say, what did you say to Mr. Lichkus? And unfortunately, he said, I just lied to him and said, I never did it. <laughs> That's what he said. And I was like, okay, cool. Thanks for letting me know. At least I know how I got off the hook that day. But I have had few moments in my life that I felt so guilty that I, had, I was the key person. And I think sometimes in life, we just know subconsciously, deep down, that we've done stuff, that we are not 
right, that we need a way to be made not guilty. I think another way to describe it in many ways is the sense of what people call imposter syndrome, where you just don't feel like you're the real deal. Maybe one of the best experiences sometimes, or the most uh, clear experiences, is in a time where you gather at church, and people are singing around you, and arms are raised, and they're going for it, and something in you goes, how do I know I can do that? They look like the real deal. They seem to really have it. They seem to be really spiritual. They seem to really have this thing going down with you know God and them, and it just looks like, I don't know if I'll ever get that, because somehow there's stuff in here that makes me feel like I'm an imposter. I just don't quite have the full package. They've got it so neat. They, look how they, they just pull off life. It's this story. It's the blood of the lamb. It's the story where God says, it's either you or it's something else. But I will bring justice to bear upon the wrongs of humanity. I will do it. It will happen because I am just and I always judge impartially. But here's the deal. I'm also gracious. You don't need someone to lie for you to the teacher to get away with this. You don't need to feel like an imposter who, who crawls in. You need something to cleanse your guilty conscience. In come the blood of the Lamb. In come this beautiful story where God says, you know what? Instead of when the angel of death passes over, instead of you and your family getting taken out, paint the blood of the Lamb. Take the life of a Lamb. Paint the blood over and I will pass over and I will put my just judgment on that and you will get what you don't deserve. My beautiful grace. And in that moment, there is this incredible exchange where instead of getting what we deserve, we walk out free and loved and given an opportunity to be loved and to love like we never imagined. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the freedom that God offers us. And that's the story for our souls that move us out of walking through the world, feeling like imposters, unable to truly risk loving and being loved, to truly risk doing something great in the name of Jesus, to truly risk the thought that I might actually be cherished. I might actually be loved. I might actually be the apple of someone's eye. And it's not because of anything I did. It's because God provided a lamb. God provided this lamb so that he could bring to bear that guilt on it. So that when that fair justice comes, it's only right that I get what I deserve. But actually I don't. I lean in. I paint the blood. I trust in God. Here's the beautiful line that really gets me every time. In chapter 12, verse 38, if you read a little further down, it says, a mixed multitude left Egypt. A mixed multitude left Egypt. Many theologians will say that this could very well imply that there were multiple Egyptians who had begun to revere the God of Moses, the God of the Hebrews. And when they heard this 10th plague was coming, they decided they wanted to be on that side. And they sacrificed a lamb. And they painted the blood. And they joined the mixed multitude of people 
who left Egypt and went to follow the true and living God. It's an amazing thought. It's not this us and them. God just liked a people. No, God has always wanted a people who would trust in his grace, who would trust that he would do for us what we could never do for ourselves so that we could live in that which we uh, can enjoy, the, the freedom that he has for us. It's a humbling story, isn't it? It's not nice. We want to make our own way there. We don't want to ask for help. We don't want to get the support of another to to get our salvation. We want to find our own way out of our imposter syndrome. We want to show that we're strong. But some of the strongest looking people in this auditorium are some of the feeblest amongst us because we need to realize we don't have the strength in ourselves. We need God's grace to make us lovable. We need to understand that it's God who did it all on our behalf. Should I tell another story? My dad and I might have told this to some of you. We go, I'm 10 years old. We go down to the Durban Harbor and we start pumping prawns. Unbeknownst to me, you need a license for that. Don't just go pump prawns somewhere. You've got to have a license. And when people who come and ask you for a license, they come from the parks board, you better show them one. Otherwise, like us, you might get taken in a car to a little parks board police station and sit there and wonder, what's going to happen next? And that's exactly what happened. But here's the amazing thing about this story. There were two parties. There was my dad and I pumping prawns, and keeping the ones that we could and putting them in a bucket, and we were doing pretty well. It was really fun, and we were going to go catch fish. And then there was another group just down the beach who were doing the exact same thing, except that when the boat came round, my dad looked at them and said, Raj, we're in trouble. (laughs) And they jumped in their little boat and went, and started getting their engine going and tried to escape and get away. And I will never forget this moment where we simply, I watch my dad, I'm like white as a sheet, going, I'm done, I'm done, this is not good, here comes prison, I'm going to be the first 10-year-old in prison ever for stealing prawns out of the harbor. And they do take us in the back of the scary thing, but I'll never forget this guy, he's standing, and they eventually caught the guys who tried to escape, and we all went together to this little police place at the harbor, and we're sitting there. And he looks at the main chief guy and he says, those guys over there, they said, and I remember my dad, he quoted my dad, what should we do? Must we tip them back? And the other guys over there, they tried to escape. And I remember just this moment of great separation between the humble who asked for mercy and the proud who tried to escape away from everything, who don't just expect kindness, who don't just expect that in humility you go, I was wrong, and I need help. And I'll never forget this moment of going, wow, honesty, humility, asking for grace, you may just get it. If you're going to get it from a policeman in the parks board at Durban Harbor, let me tell you, you're going to get it from the God of the Bible in such great measure. And you would be foolish to be like the Pharaoh who gets warning after warning after warning of mercy upon mercy upon mercy, but you don't just receive that grace 
and bow the knee and recognize he is for you. He's not against you, and he wants to be the redeemer to you. How are you doing? At just trusting, not being stronger than God, not trying to be God for yourself, but letting him love you. I'm inviting you to trust him today. I'm inviting you into his grace because the story of the gospel is fulfilled in Jesus in that he becomes the firstborn who stands before humanity as the federal representative for every human being. The only key for each of us is trust. Just trust him. Trust is is different to believing in our context because sometimes when we hear the word believe, you find yourself going, well, I believe in God. Who doesn't believe in God? And most of us will go some sort of, I believe in God. No, we need to believe God. It's to trust. It's to go, he did what I could never do so that he could take me out of imposter syndrome and I could get the love I need. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Doesn't matter all the difficult internal struggles you're facing. He comes to love you right there. And he comes to call you into a whole new family experience. To let him love you and to let others love you. And then to become a person who loves others. That's the story of the gospel. That's what we live in. That's the thing we tell ourselves every day. You are just but you are gracious. You are the just one, but you're also the justifier. And it's in that space that we get to rest, and it's not because our friend had to lie. It's because the lamb was slain on our behalf. Of course, if you've followed the story, you know that ultimately it's fulfilled in Jesus. It's on that Passover night that Jesus himself goes and he says, the lamb was just a foreshadow of the true firstborn who would go to the cross on our behalf. He would be without blemish. He would never sin. Unlike us, he would live the life we could never live and then go and die the death that we should have died so that we can step into the beautiful kingdom experience of being loved and knowing that whether you like it or not, if you put your trust in Jesus, you can wake up knowing your conscience can be clear even when you feel like an imposter. Even when it feels all wrong, you are madly loved. You are beautifully forgiven. You are powerfully restored. And you are on a journey towards the age to come where you will have that for all time. That's the gospel. And we cling to it. New to faith, I want to give you a gap now. To say yes. Maybe you're at home. Maybe you're sitting in this auditorium. I hope that more of us start sitting in this auditorium because Jesus, he came to incarnate amongst us. He's the lamb that lived amongst us. And we're going to start seeing more and more of us seeing this as the place where we get to live out embodied experiential faith where we get to love and be loved and enjoy the love of God. I ask the band to come up. I'm going to ask you to stand up and I'm going to ask you to stay in a space where you're letting God minister to you. Would you just close your eyes for a moment? Would you just contemplate the the story of the gospel? Would you just let the 
message of the wonder that God is a just God, but he is also a gracious God, rest upon your life. Don't feel for the person to the left or to the right. I want you to just take a moment to reflect upon the gospel for you. Jesus is the firstborn on your behalf, but it's because of his work, your shame is given to him. Won't you even just let the shame of this week be given to him? Won't you let the frustrations that your own lack of performance or your own standards that you've set for yourself that have beat you up, won't you give those to him now? We all find our hearts sitting in the little police station, wondering what's the verdict over my life? What are they going to say? And as my dad tipped that bucket of prawns out and said, should we put them back? It's the same as, or similar to, coming to Jesus and going, here I am. Take my stuff. I don't have it all right, but I give it freshly to you. Quite broken, making mistakes, but I trust you love me. And I trust that you give me your resourcing from heaven. I'm just aware of God's presence. Just wanting to remind you that he's for you this week. Scriptures say that God poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And then he poured out his spirit again uh, in, in Acts chapter 8 on uh, other believers, and then again on Cornelius and all his whole household as they heard the message of the gospel. They all got these experiences, these encounters that God was for them, that he was with them because of what Jesus had done. Even now, I wonder if you would just, if you're open to this, pop your hands up and a sign of receiving. Just out, palms up, and just say, God, here I am. I receive your love. My hands are empty, but you are full of love and mercy and justice. I give you my brokenness and I receive your wholeness. I give you my sin and I receive your forgiveness. I give you my failings from the week and the year and the decades past. And I receive your grace. give you my fears of the future and I receive your promises I give you my anxiety and I receive your faithfulness I give you my loneliness and I receive your presence I give you my sadness and I receive your joy Not because of me, but because of you. And I choose to say yes again. Maybe some for the first time, 
to your invitation to follow you. I follow you not because I'm worthy, but because I believe in the blood of the Lamb. That one died so that I could live. That one was given so that I could get everything. Everything I truly need is life in you, Jesus. Some are frustrated with their sense of progress. You're not growing fast enough. You're not getting going enough in Jesus. I really want, I feel like Jesus saying, slow is the new fast. Slow down with me and I'll speed up your growth. Don't be frustrated, be present. Don't try to get somewhere, rather just be with me and I will love you and I will walk with you and I will take you where you need to go. But trust in my grace. Trust that I am with you and that each morning you wake up, your conscience is clear because he cleansed it. Not because you're perfect, but because of his perfection. Jesus, as we sing, as we just slow down together and enjoy this little time, I pray that you would minister freshly your presence, your power, your kindness. God, I'm so repentant of my rushed life. Some of us think maybe I need to get out. There's something to do. And I just pray that as we sometimes just soak in the silence, we find ourselves increasingly happy there because you fill the silence with kindness and your presence and with your listening ear. And so I pray you coach us and you call us and you massage into our souls your presence and your grace. God is for you. He is for you. Let's sing together.